Thanks for joining us for today's message. We encourage you to email us and let us know what God is currently doing in your life. Or if you'd like to support the ministry financially, you can do so here on our website. For now, we hope you enjoy this message from our special guest minister. Thanks for tuning in today. Who remembers other times I've been here? Who's heard me speak before? Okay, great. So I'm in a friendly environment. That's good. You guys know what you're up for then. You know, so let me just remind you that my teachings always revolve around careful, precise reading of the Word of God, right? You know that? Yes, I'm a rabbi. Yes, I'm Jewish, but I'm not going to be quoting rabbinic sources. We're just going to be reading the Word of God very carefully and finding in it answers to some of the things. Hey, you're doing awesome. Good to see you. <laughs> Sorry, say hello. And we're going to be seeing in it lessons for us for today, for what we're dealing with, and even for what we're, we're fighting for in, the, in this current political environment. One of the values that we hold dear, people of biblical faith hold dear, that has been under attack in recent times is the importance of family. And I say family in the traditional sense of the word. The setting of priorities within the context of family. Who controls the family? There are many passages in the Bible that I could have chosen for this discussion. In the Bible, and especially in the book of Genesis, which we're going to be studying a passage from, family is a central theme. And it's beyond any one comment for me to talk about how family is important in the Bible. That could be, uh, you know, every Sunday morning for years. But I want to share a powerfully relevant lesson regarding family that emerges from a story in Genesis from chapter 33. If you want, you could turn in your Bible to Genesis 33, but the verses will be on the screen. And I believe that as we uncover this lesson, we will see that this is not merely relevant in a general sense to modern times, but is particularly relevant to the societal and cultural challenges that we face right now. And this is the scene of the meeting between Jacob and Esau after 20 years apart. That's the scene. Right, they were, well, what happened was Jacob, of course, after Jacob received the blessings from his father, remember when he dressed up as Esau, he got the blessings, and then Esau vowed to kill him, and Jacob flees. He wasn't only running away, he's also being sent away the father. Isaac was not told that Esau wanted to kill him. Isaac was told that Jacob was leaving to go find a spouse, and he flees to his uncle Laban's house. Laban his mother, Rebecca's brother. So because Esau had vowed to kill Jacob, because Esau had vowed to kill Jacob after their father's death, Jacob, upon returning home now, 20 years later, and now he has, he has uh, essentially four wives, right? Rachel, Leah, Billa, and Zilpah. He has all these, all these children, the forefathers of the tribes of Israel. Yeah, he has a lot of livestock, all the sheep. 
He left by himself, remember, running away alone, sleeping at night with his head on a rock, dreaming of a ladder up to heaven with angels going up and down. And now he's coming back to the land with a big family, with a lot of possessions. And he's worried about the encounter with his brother Esau. In preparation for this meeting, because Jacob knows that his brother vowed to kill him, in preparation for this meeting, Jacob prepares his family for the likelihood that Esau will attack them. Jacob went so far in the preparation that he divided the family into two camps. This is in the chapter before the one we're going to look at. This is in, in Genesis 32. Jacob divides the family into two camps and he tells them that the reason he's dividing everyone into two separate camps and putting space between them is that just in case Esau attacks, perhaps half the family will be wiped out and the other half will survive. Jacob prays to God to save him from Esau. He prepared an elaborate gift to send to Esau in advance to appease his anger. Jacob and his family are expecting the worst. They're terrified. Now just before we read Genesis 33, I want you to picture, as we're reading this passage, that you are one of Jacob's children. That you're there. It's very valuable when you're reading stories in the Bible, that you, as you're reading them, imagine that you are in the story. Imagine that you're, that you're participating in the story. You're reading about the splitting of the sea and the people of Israel walking. Imagine that you're walking across the Red Sea. Amen. And then think about what that feels like, what's going through your mind, right? With every biblical story, it's valuable to do that. You'll sometimes get, gain insights into the story that you didn't have otherwise. So just picture that you're one of Jacob's sons or daughters or servants. You're part of the crowd there. He's just divided the family in half. Some of your siblings are over there in the other camp. And he's told you that there's a decent chance that half of you are going to get wiped out. This is really serious. Imagine what you're thinking as you see them walking off in their direction and you're walking off in your direction. You're getting ready for this confrontation. You see your dad is so worried. He's up all night. He's praying. <laughs> Uncle Esau must be a really scary dude. Let's take a look at the scene of the meeting now. Genesis 33, we'll start right away at verse 1. Get the scriptures up there? Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked. And there Esau was coming, and with him were 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and two maidservants. And he put the maidservants and their children in front, and Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. Benjamin wasn't born yet. That's why he's not there. It's just Rachel and Joseph. Then he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And he lifted his eyes, Esau lifted his eyes and he saw the women and children. Now pay close attention to the dialogue that takes place now in this scene. 
He lifted his eyes and he saw the women and children and said, who are these people? Who are, who are these with you? So he said, Jacob said, these are the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants came near, Billa and Zilpah came near, they and their children and bowed down. And Leah came near with her children and they bowed down. And afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near and they bowed down. Then Esau said, what do you mean by all this company which I met? What he meant was there was a large gift of cattle and, and lots of things that were sent, sent forward. Jacob had sent servants with a large gift to Esau. So as Esau was approaching, this gift came towards him. And that's what he's asking about. He says, what do you mean by all this company which I met? And he said, Jacob said, they are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. And Esau said, Okay, this is a bad translation. Whoa, okay, pause. <laughs> and it's a bad translation. I, you know, when they asked me what translation I wanted, I said, I just use any translation. It doesn't matter. I didn't expect this. Okay. And this is critical. Verse 9. If you have your Bibles in front of you, and they're not this translation, this, this translation is the New King James. I don't know what translations you have, so I want you to put up your hand if you have a different word where I, where I point out where the translation is a little off. Esau said, I have enough. Does everyone have enough in your, in your Bibles? No, what do you have? You're, I have plenty. Thank you. That's what it actually says. Why do translators do this? I don't know. I mean, sometimes I understand there's a word that's really vague and it can go either way and they have to choose and they choose one translation. But when they just, there's a very simple translation. The Hebrew here and this is critical. This is actually one of the most important verses we're going to talk about today. Of all the verses, this is the one that has a, a translation that's a little off. The Hebrew here is Esau said, Yesh, listen carefully to the Hebrew. I'm going to teach you a little Hebrew today. Yesh li rav. Yesh li means I have. Remember that phrase because you're going to hear it again. Yesh li means I have. Okay? Yesh li, I have. Rav means plenty. There's no other translation of it. It's a pretty clear word. Why did they translate it here as enough? I have no idea. But it's, I have plenty. So if your Bible says I have plenty or I have a lot, if that's what's in your Bible, that's correct. You have that? Good. Okay, let's get back to... Uh... So Esau said, I have... We're going to correct the... Sorry, New King James. I have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. As we get deeper into this teaching, you'll realize how wrong the New King James actually is. Okay. Because it's really, this is a mistake. Okay, so Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. I don't, I don't need your gift. I, I, have, I, have, I have plenty. Not enough, sorry. He's messing me up. I have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. But then Jacob responds, and he says, no, 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 please, if I have now found favor in your sight, please, you know, take the gift. Receive my present from my hand. Inasmuch as I have seen your face, and though, it's as though I've seen the face of God, and you were pleased with me. Like, this is so, it's so wonderful to see you. Please keep the gift. Please take my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously, graciously with me, and because I have Enough. This is also incorrect, folks. But here it doesn't say, I have a lot. Here the Hebrew is, this is closer to correct, as you'll soon see. But here, 
Remember, yeshli means I have. Remember that? So here Jacob says, because God has dealt graciously with, graciously with me, and because yesh li kol. The word kol means everything. Yesh li kol. I have everything. Now, so if your translation says everything that I need, it might say that. Does it say that? Anyone have that in your translation? All that I need? More than enough is incorrect, but it's, it's fine. It's not, it's, not so, it's not as incorrect as the Esau one. But if it says everything or all that I need, that's because the literal is I have everything. Yesh li kol. I have everything. That's what Jacob says. Okay? He says, please take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because yesh li kol, I have everything. So he urged him and Esau took the gift. Then Esau said, let us take our journey. Let us go. I'll go before you. Like I'll, I'll accompany you. You know, I got a big army. You're traveling with your, with your family. Let's, let's travel together for a bit. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are weak. The flocks and the herds which are nursing are with me. If the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. Please let my Lord go ahead. He's referring to Esau. Let my Lord go ahead and, and before his servant. I'll lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure. You know, we're a slow-moving family. We got kids. We got livestock. Esau, we don't need to travel together. You go ahead. You go on your way. Until I come to my Lord in Seir. I'll come visit you at some point, maybe never. <laughs> so Esau returned that day on his way. Got the next verse? So Esau returned. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But the story doesn't end there. The chapter doesn't end. And Jacob journeyed. So then, now the Bible tells us that Jacob journeyed to a place called Sukkot. And he built himself a house, and he made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkot. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padan Aram, that's where Laban lives, and he pitched his tent before the city. And he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father. You're already getting bored at this point in the story. For 100 pieces of silver. <laughs> then he erected an altar there and called it El Elohei Yisrael. The God of, he named it after the God of Israel. Right, that's the end of the chapter. Now... I mentioned before that you should imagine that you're one of Jacob's children. You've never met your uncle Esau. You've heard stories about him. You see your father praying, preparing, worried. And you're imagining what kind of violent monster this guy is. And then what happens? Hugging, kissing, and the conversation that they had. I'm going to paraphrase the conversation. Who are all these people? Oh, these are my kids. Oh, here, please take this gift. Oh, no, thank you. Please take it. Oh, okay. Can I go with you? Can I accompany you? No, thank you. Can I give you some men for protection? No, 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 really, we'll be just fine. Thank you very much. Okay, goodbye. 
That's what happened in the confrontation with Jacob and Esau. Small talk. That's it. Now, you're one of Jacob's kids. You're in these separated camps, lest half of you get wiped out. And you must be thinking to yourself, what is wrong with dad? What, what, was he, what was he so freaked out about? Uncle Esau seems like a great guy. He's kind, of, he's kind of tough and cool, but, you know, he seems like a very nice person. He seemed very happy to see dad. Whatever, whatever issues they had in the past, they don't seem to be there now. What was dad so scared of? Nothing happened. This is one of the most anticlimactic things in the Bible. There's a whole chapter in advance of Jacob. You know, he's wrestling with the angel and he's praying all night and he's, and he's crying out to God to save him from Esau. There's a whole prayer in the Bible of Jacob's, the text of Jacob's prayer to God. And then the, the big scene happens and it's, it's this. It's some small talk and kind of pleasantries and the kind of small talk that we don't usually see in the Bible. You know, in the Bible we have these like, only the key information. We don't have a lot of, you know, small talk and stage direction. Hey, how you doing? Who are these people? Oh, it's my kids. Oh, very nice. Like, we don't have that type of conversation. Of course they had it, but it's not included in the Bible. So I'd like to suggest that in fact, this was a very dangerous encounter. It was very dangerous. And Jacob knew it was very dangerous, even as it was unfolding. And he also, it wasn't what he expected, but it was very dangerous. He also knew very well that like all of us sitting here, his family may not have realized how dangerous it was. And he wanted them to realize how dangerous it was. The key to understanding the threat that Esau posed in this scene is actually found in the closing lines, which were also the type of information that the Bible doesn't really tell us and kind of bores us. Verse 17. How quick are you on the draw? I'm going to be calling out verses. Can you get them up on the screen? Thank you. Right after Esau went his way, it said, And Jacob journeyed to Sukkot, and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkot. Let me explain this verse. The Hebrew word Sukkot means booths, makeshift shacks. That's what the word means. The Hebrew name for the Feast of Tabernacles is the same word, Sukkot. Now, tabernacle is a fancy word, and the original tabernacle was like the house of God, the, temp the portable temple in the desert. But that's kind of like a nice translation of the word Sukkot when we're talking about the holiday, the Feast of Tabernacles. The word Sukkah, which appears all over the Bible in some mundane situations too, really just means a kind of makeshift hut. The kind of shack you put up temporarily when you're maybe farming out in the field and you need to build a little hut to shield yourself from the sun while you eat lunch. It's a makeshift structure. 
And the reason that that festival is called Sukkot, as we see in Leviticus chapter 23, is that the primary observance of this festival, which just ended a few weeks ago, is the requirement to dwell for seven days in a sukkah. That's the singular of Sukkot. A flimsy, temporary dwelling. And we do that today. You may be aware, this is a Jewish practice. We build these makeshift huts, put like temporary uh, roof on it made out of just some branches, and we eat and sleep in there for the week of the Feast of Tabernacles. That's the primary observance. You could look it up in Leviticus 23, and you'll see right there, that's what Sukkot, that's how we observe this festival. Now, to qualify as a sukkah for the Feast of Tabernacles, the roof is supposed to be, as I said, temporary. It's not solid. It must allow the elements in. You have to be able to see the sky through the roof. And this word sukkot is the name of the place, meaning the same as the name of the festival that doesn't come until after the Exodus many, many years later. That's the name of this place that Jacob journeys to. And it's not even where they settle, by the way. This, is what, this really makes it even stranger that it's here. Because the very next verse, after it says that Jacob journeyed to Sukkot, you know, go back one, let's, let's read it all together now. Jacob journeyed to Sukkot, built himself a house, and he made Sukkot for his livestock. He made booths, and the Hebrew word there is Sukkot. He made Sukkot for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkot. And then the very next verse says, Then Jacob traveled to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. Padam and Aram, he pitched his tent there. And then it says he purchases, and then he keep going. He bought the parcel of land there where he pitched his tent, and they settled there. So what about this place, Sukkot? You understand what happens here? The story with Esau ends. Jacob and his family travel to a place where he builds a house for himself, and builds a, uh, a kind of like, I guess, a barn, a makeshift corral, some sort of shelter for his livestock. They name the place after the shelter for the livestock. And then immediately, or I guess we don't know how long it is, and then they travel on to some other place where they settle. This is a very strange passage. It's quite peculiar. It's, it's highly, highly peculiar for the Bible to mention a place where Jacob and his family temporarily camped after meeting Esau before continuing on their way to somewhere else where they eventually settled. This is not the kind of detail that the Bible includes in stories. I'm sure that there are countless places that various people traveling in the Bible briefly camped at that we have no idea about. Most of the time, we don't even know the location of where the forefathers were living in a particular story. It doesn't tell us. But here we have this seemingly irrelevant location. What's even more baffling, and let's get back to the key point here, is the reason that Jacob names the place Sukkot. The verse states, and can we go back to verse 17? Sorry to drive you crazy. Let's go back to verse 17. Jacob journeyed to Sukkot. The verse states that he built himself a house and he made Sukkot, makeshift shacks, for his cattle. Builds two things, a house for himself, for himself and his family, he's not the only one in the house. 
And for his possessions and his cattle, his livestock, he builds a makeshift shack. And therefore, he names the place Makeshift Shacks. What? He built a house for himself and his family. He built a makeshift hut for his cattle. Therefore, he named the place Makeshift Hut. What, what's the point of this? You're looking confused. You're not confused. Oh, you already know the answer? I think he was. That's an easy answer to this whole thing. Jacob was confused. My friends, listen carefully. By naming the place after the flimsy makeshift hut that he made for the cattle, and, and by building something more solid, a home for himself and his family, Jacob was sending a very powerful message to his family. And the message he was sending was a direct response to the danger of the meeting with Esau. Everyone with me? Okay, listen carefully. In the extremely polite and innocuous dialogue that we talked about before, that small talk, that polite chit-chat that Jacob and Esau made, each of them, as I pointed out with those translations, each of these two brothers, Esau and Jacob, made a statement about their own relationship to their material wealth. And what Pastor Mike was talking about earlier in the service, spot on with what I'm going to talk about today. I was saying to Pastor Vicky, I was like, oh my gosh, he's, he's right on my theme. When initially refusing the gift, when, when Esau first refused to accept the gift, Esau said, and let's go back to verse 9. Got verse 9? And Esau said, I have a lot. I have plenty, my brother. Let that which you have be yours. Jacob's response, urging Esau to take the gift, two verses later, verse 11. He says, take my gift, I pray you, uh, take my gift that I brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have everything. Esau, referring to his own wealth and why he doesn't want to accept the gift, says, I have a lot. Jacob, referring to his wealth, says, I have everything. What's the difference between I have a lot, and I have everything. My friends, the difference is night and day. Listen carefully. Both Esau and Jacob were very wealthy men. That's clear from the stories. Neither of them had any problem supporting their family, paying their bills. When someone says, I have everything, as Jacob said, they obviously don't mean that they own everything. What they mean is that they have everything they need, everything that they want. What they're saying, in effect, is is the key point. Focus in here. What they're saying when they say, I have everything, is that money, wealth, is a means and not an end in and of itself. In other words, let me explain. If money, if the purpose of money is as a means to fill my wants and needs and I have enough money to fill those wants and needs, all my wants and needs are met, then I have everything. On the other hand, if money is not a means 
to filling my wants and needs. But it's an end in and of itself. It's a goal in and of itself. I want money because I want more money. The more money I have, the more power I have. I want money because I want money. Not to fulfill my needs. So if I want money for the sake of having money, then there's no such thing as having everything unless I literally have everything. Which is impossible. So if wealth is a goal in and of itself, then no matter, much, no, no matter how much I have, I could always have more. I always want more. I have a lot. When, G when Esau says, I have a lot, for a wealthy man like Esau, that's not a statement about fulfilling his worldly needs. If he saw money as a tool to fulfill his needs and all his needs are met, he'd say, I have everything. But that's not what he said. He said, I have a lot. Because for Esau, wealth is not a means to filling other needs. It's a goal in and of itself. The materialistic attitude that Esau expresses here is the cultural mindset of Esau. He rejects the covenantal birthright. Remember, I'll take you back to an earlier story. When Jacob um, purchased the birthright from Esau, you know the scene with the pot of lentils? When Jacob purchases the birthright there, it's a very interesting moment that takes place where Jacob says to Esau, sell me your birthright. And Esau responds to him by saying, behold, I am going to die. What good is this birthright to me? That's the exact quote that he says. I'm going to die. What good is the birthright to me? Now, most people interpret this scene incorrectly. Most people interpret it that Esau at that moment was like on his deathbed. Like he came and he was so exhausted, he was about to collapse and die, like, a, like someone at the end of a marathon who needs to be held up, right? And he's like, well, I'm, 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 I'm dying here, man. I don't care about any birthright. Like that's how people interpret the text. It's very clear from that scene that that's incorrect. Why? Why is that clear? Because the, because the Bible goes on to say that after Esau ate and drank, he stood up and left. It says that right there. It says he ate and he drank and he got up and he left. If someone's about to, if someone's so exhausted that they're collapsing and they feel like they're about to die and they eat a warm meal, what happens? They fall asleep. They don't get up and leave. So it's very clear that when Esau said, behold, I'm, I'm, I will die, what good is the birthright to me? He wasn't talking about that very moment. What Esau was basically saying was, listen, these people... Jacob and Esau, were, these are the sons of Isaac. These are the grandsons of Abraham. They grew up in a pretty interesting family. They knew what the birthright was. They know about the promises. And they know that the promises mean, as God said to Abraham, that your children will be enslaved in a foreign land for 400 years. And they're going to suffer. And then they're going to come out and they'll be a great nation. And then I'll bring them back to this land and Esau basically turns to Jacob and he says, you want the birthright? The birthright isn't going to come, you know, like, I'm not going to be able to cash in those chips for hundreds of years. I'm not going to be alive to see that. I'm going to die. What good's the birthright to me? What do I need a birthright for? I'm not going to live to see it. That's Esau. 
Esau doesn't care about eternity. Esau cares about his life in the present. He cares more about the moment, more about this world than the next world. Esau, see, Esau who thinks this way, he sees wealth and materialism as a goal in and of itself. No, no matter how much he has, he can always have more. So he says, I have a lot. Now, Esau did not attack Jacob. He didn't try to kill his family. He hugged and kissed him. He was very polite. But this is the danger, folks. Those who oppose God's values do not only pose a threat to us when they're actually trying to kill us. Sometimes the threat is even greater when they hug and kiss us. When they offer to walk with us in unity. When the dominant culture of materialism and godless materialism like Esau, who doesn't care about eternity, he doesn't care about the next world. When that culture of materialism is inviting and pleasant and charming, it poses a risk. Our children are at risk, not of getting killed, but of being influenced by a set of values that is contrary to what we believe in. Jacob understands that the fact that Uncle Esau showed himself to be so pleasant and so warm actually poses a grave threat. Imagine if Jacob had said yes to Esau and said, oh yeah, let's have a family unity again. Let's, let's travel together. Let's camp together. Let's start living near each other. Let my kids have an ongoing long-term relationship with Esau and his family. Then the values of Esau become an influence in the lives of Jacob's children. The threat of buying into Esau's materialism and focus on this world is real. So Jacob, as soon as this encounter is over and Jacob's realizing, oh my gosh, this is very dangerous. My kids are probably thinking that Esau's wonderful. They might even start seeing him as a role model. So first, See, here's Jacob's response to this danger. First, he rejects the offer to travel together. Then, once they've gone their separate ways, he builds a house, a permanent dwelling for his family, and a sukkah, a temporary makeshift dwelling for his possessions. Jacob is sending his family a very important message. Possessions come second, they're temporary. You ever hear the expression, you can't take it with you? Jacob is sending his family a message. Possessions are temporary. They're, they go in the makeshift hut. Family, that comes first. Family, that's in the house. That's in the permanent dwelling. Family is permanent. Family is sacred and eternal. Wealth is temporary. It goes in the sukkah. To emphasize this point, to make it clear that Esau's attitude to material possessions is unacceptable and wrong, Jacob names the place after the makeshift hut. Because his key point is that possessions and material wealth is secondary. Ladies and gentlemen, what Jacob taught his family that day is critical for us in our times. 
when the prevailing society promotes a set of values that glorifies the pleasures of the moment and prioritizes physical beauty spiritual, uh, over spiritual substance, when the dominant culture says that it's better to have fun for as long as you can instead of getting married and starting a family, these are materialistic values. And that's when we must do what Jacob did. We must teach what Jacob taught. And I call this, he does two things. He retreats and he reinforces. He retreats from the influence, and we must do that. Whether it's TV, Hollywood, the government education system, we must retreat and we must reinforce. We must reinforce the sacred eternal values and beliefs that are embedded in the Bible. God, morality, and prioritizing the family. This message that the material world, wealth and possessions are secondary to family, that they're a means and not an ends, is walked out and lived by all Jews in our single most challenging and most defining and most meaningful practice. It's done every week and it's called Shabbat, the Sabbath, also known as the fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 9 states, Six days you shall labor, and you shall do all of your work. All of your work. Really, when's the last time you reached the end of the week and you were done with everything you have to do in life? Why didn't the verse, I mean, why didn't the scripture just say, why didn't the, why didn't the Ten Commandments say, Six days you shall labor and do your work? No problem. Why does it have to say six days you shall labor and do all your work? This is a really nitpicky question, right? But every word of the Bible is teaching us something. Every word of the Bible is necessary. And you've heard me say this before from this stage. That when you find a word or a phrase in the Bible that looks like it's kind of not adding anything, kind of looks extra, why is the Bible telling me that he traveled to a place and built a hut? It's those verses that, that where you have to mark the spot with an X and dig. That's where, the, that's where the messages lie. Friends, listen carefully. Why does the Bible say, six days you shall labor and do all your work? It's the same message that we learned from Jacob. If working and making money is an end in and of itself, it's the goal of my life, it's my purpose in life, then you can never say you've done all of your work because you could always do more. On the other hand, if working is a means to get to the point that you have what you need to serve God and nurture and spend time with your family, then when you get to that point, you've done all your work. You can only say all if work is a means, if it's secondary to a higher goal. When my great-grandfather emigrated to the United States, he would find work at the beginning of each week in the sweatshops of New York, only to get fired every Friday when he told his boss that he would not be coming in on Saturday because it was the Sabbath. And then he'd go out at the beginning of the next week and find another job until Friday. And then eventually he went into business for himself. But some things are more important than money. On Shabbat, the Sabbath, travel is forbidden. Use of electricity is forbidden. Cell phones are off. TV is off. 
computers are off. Work and discussion of business is forbidden. Now, the Torah, our law, does not say, thou shalt have family time once a week. It doesn't say that. It just gives us rules. Don't light a fire. Don't do any manner of work. But the result of the rules is what I just mentioned. No one's going anywhere. No one's on their phone. No one's watching TV. So what do you do? Community, family, conversation. That's what we experience every Shabbat. It's worth noting that the Sabbath, Shabbat, is the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments. Everyone, if I stopped any of you on the street and said, you keep the Ten Commandments? Oh, of course, I keep the Ten Commandments. And I want to point something out about the structure of the Ten Commandments. It's the fourth commandment is the Sabbath. And if you're, if you're saying to yourself, well, I don't really know the Ten Commandments. Well, you should. The first three commandments are all about God. Right? Don't have other, I'm the Lord your God. Don't have other gods before me. Don't use God's name in vain. Right? The opening few commandments are all about God. The fifth commandment, the one after the Sabbath is honor your father and mother, which is the foundation of the family unit. Children honoring their parents. Parents nurturing that honor. You can't just act like a, like a slob and expect your kids to honor you. You have to work on that. Parents need to work on the... The commandment of children to honor parents is something parents need to work on too. Make sure that you're nurturing that honor. But honor your father and your mother is the foundation of the family unit. So think about this. Well, I, have, I have three commandments about God. Now the last five commandments are all the, the moral prohibitions. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, right? All those. But the first five commandments, I have three commandments about God. Then I have the Sabbath. And then I have the commandment to honor your father and mother. Think about that structure. In between the commandments about God, which preceded. And the commandment to honor parents is the Sabbath. So I'd like to suggest that the order of these commandments is deliberate and it itself is teaching us something. This isn't a radical suggestion. Of course the order is deliberate. It's the, it's the Bible. Shabbat follows the first three commandments and leads to the fifth commandment. The reason, what do I mean by that? Why, the reason for the Sabbath is to honor God. God created the world in six days. On the seventh day, he rested. He sanctified that day. So as a sign of my faith in God and my faith in the creator of the world, I observe that and I keep the Sabbath. I keep the Sabbath because of God. He's the living creator, took us out of Egypt, all the reasons given in the Bible for the Sabbath. But what's the result of keeping the Sabbath? What follows the Sabbath commandment? The health and cohesion of the family. Because as a result of keeping the Sabbath, we're gathering around the table every week as a family. We're singing and praising God together. No one's going anywhere. We're focused on community and family, quality time, Praying, singing, eating, talking. Every single week for 24 hours, parents spend important time with their children and with their community. And children, as a result, have more respectful relationships with their parents. Think about that. 
the Ten Commandments, God, 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 the Sabbath, and what does it lead to? The family. That's what we work towards all week. Now, I did not come here today to convince you to start observing the Jewish Sabbath. Not at all. That is not my goal. No Jewish altar call at the end of this talk. (laughs) But I would like to suggest to you that as Christians in today's America, as people who believe in the Bible and believe in the Ten Commandments, you can learn from the message of Shabbat. The culture in which we live is not always friendly to religious values, to say the least. Increasingly, Christians across this land are scared. They're scared for their children. What values are they being exposed to, both in school and in the media? How do we keep them committed to God? How do we raise a family with strong faith based on, a, based on biblical values and a hostile culture? Well, we Jews have been living in cultures that are hostile to our beliefs for centuries. Maybe we have some wisdom to share from our experience, keeping it together. So I want to challenge you a little bit. I want to challenge you. And if you came to church this morning expecting to leave exactly as you were when you came, then I don't know why you came. You came here to gain something. So I want to challenge you. Christians place great importance on the Ten Commandments. In the Fourth Commandment, the Sabbath is not just a commandment to have a day off. That would be a very strange thing to include in the Big Ten. Don't murder, don't steal, have faith in God, don't have any false gods, right? Like, don't commit adultery. Put your feet up once a week. Take a nap. That's not what the fourth commandment is about. The fourth commandment is the bridge between your faith and your family. Between the first three commandments and the fifth commandment. And it's no accident that if you read the Ten Commandments, just read it as a text. Read through Exodus 20. The commandment of the Sabbath is the longest of the Ten Commandments. The most text is devoted to it. The fifth commandment is the second longest. Why is this so? Seven of the Ten Commandments are prohibitions. The last five, as I mentioned, and the second and third, or the first, second, and third, depending on how you you interpret that. Only the fourth and the fifth commandments are things that we're supposed to do in the Ten Commandments. Most of the Ten Commandments are negative. Don't do this, don't do this, don't don't have false gods, right? Don't kill, don't murder, don't don't covet, right? All the... The only positive commandments, the only commandments in the Ten Commandments that are instructing us to do something are the fourth and the fifth. Remember the Sabbath, honor your parents. Put them together, honor God as a family. Teach your children what's primary and what is secondary. What goes in the house, what goes in the sukkah. That time spent together with no other distractions, with no other distractions, is not a break. Ten Commandments doesn't include a commandment to have a break. It's the goal. It's scary out there. 
raising a family. But if you believe that the Bible is the handbook, the instruction manual for life on earth, then there's no reason to be afraid. The answers are here, right where they've always been, right there in the Ten Commandments, right there in the Bible. You know, I was once putting my young daughter to bed, and I was reading her, I think last year I quoted Little House on the Prairie. Do you guys remember that? So I'll quote a different passage in Little House on the Prairie this time. I'm not going to quote it, I'll just mention I remember I was once reading Little House on the Prairie when I was putting my daughter to bed. Another one of these times I was reading a random chapter, if you remember what I said last year. And there was a scene where Laura wanted to play outside on Sunday afternoon. They came home from church, and it's Sunday, and she wanted to go outside and play. And she asked her father, she asked Pa, permission to change out of her Sunday clothes into her weekday clothes to go pray. To go play, sorry, to go play outside. And I I remember reading that thinking like, that's so interesting. Because I visit churches all across America, and I don't see people all dressed up in their, what used to be called your Sunday best. That's interesting. But you also think about those of you who are older in the room will remember that there was a time when Sunday was a Sabbath. It was. Yeah, you see a, a nodding there. Sunday was a Sabbath. And folks, more than ever, with the media the way it is and the smartphones and everything else going on in our lives, Christians need a Sabbath. Amen. Yes. And what I mean by that is a time yes. where you retreat from the world and you reinforce your family relationship in the context of honoring God, which is what the Sabbath is all about. We shut, my job is irrelevant, my wallet's over there, my car keys are over there, my cell phone is off, no one's going anywhere, we're sitting around the table as a family, talking about what the week was like, what is our prayer for next week, spending time together, playing some board games, whatever it is, time with parents and children together, cut off from the world. That's the intent of the Sabbath. Again, I'm not calling on you to observe the Jewish Sabbath. I'm calling on you to create a Sabbath. We need it so badly right now. And I challenge you to try it. Even turning the, switching the, the smartphone to off is difficult for some people. They get like almost a physical reaction to it. Try it once a week. Try it at first just for a few hours where, where the family gets together for dinner, everyone puts their phones somewhere else, and for the next three hours, it's just the family around the table with no distractions. If you do it for a whole day, then you're getting more biblical. But folks, I, I think Christians in America today, and they used to have it, like I said, it's not so long ago, maybe one or two generations ago, where Sunday was a Sabbath. And that Sabbath needs to be rediscovered. It can't just be an hour and a half or two hours. Depending on how long I go, it could go pretty long. How long in church Sunday morning. That's not enough to combat what's going on, what's swirling around us and our children all week long. Folks, you need a Sabbath. I want to say a few words about, uh, about the upcoming elections. Because this is very serious. 
There's a lot of things converging all at once. You'd almost think that God had planned it this way. Israel's election is this Tuesday. Brazil, by the way, is having a very important election today. Anyone aware of that? Very important election today. We're also, it's the same forces at work. We have Bolsonaro, who was an evangelical Christian, a God-fearing man, versus essentially a Marxist, atheist. The same battles are taking place across the world. Things have gotten very clear. I think that's the good side. Things have gotten very clear. Yeah, I see you're not. Things have gotten very, very clear. And, of course, we need to pray. We need to vote. We need to not be afraid of politics. I think I said this last year. So many people have said, oh, I don't want to get involved in politics. They get uncomfortable when the pastor mentions politics. Folks, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, King David, a lot of politics in the Bible. Because we need to not surrender that ground to those who despise the word of God. And that's really part of what, that's, you know, praying for Israel, yes, God will prosper those who pray for Israel, but it's not a candy machine. That's not why you pray for Israel. You don't pray for Israel so you'll prosper. Folks, the left, the secular atheist left, is terrified of the fulfillment of prophecy. The worst thing that could happen to them is that biblical prophecy gets fulfilled. The greatest standing example of biblical prophecy fulfilled in the world today is the ingathered Jewish nation in the land of Israel after thousands of years of exile. In the words of Deuteronomy 30, more numerous and more prosperous than our ancestors. The idea of a Jewish nation state in the land of Israel after a lengthy exile in fulfillment of biblical prophecy is unacceptable to those who deny the truth of the Bible. When you pray for Israel, when you fight for Israel, when you stand with Israel, you are standing up for the fulfillment of God's word on this earth. Nothing more, nothing less. So we're all in this together. This is all really one big story, folks. And the message that I shared with you this morning about the importance of solidifying our our families in faith and the message that we get from the Bible, unfortunately today, this is also part of our politics. It wasn't so long ago that we never thought about issues like this when we went to the polls. But look at what's going on. Look what's going on in the education system today. Look Look at the messages coming through our smartphones and our TVs. More than ever, we need to create that space for God for our, and for our families. We need to create that Sabbath space. I'll just end by uh, mentioning a recent endeavor. About a year ago, I started a podcast. Can I have that slide up? There we go. I started a podcast. It's a weekly podcast called Shoulder to Shoulder that I co-host together with a pastor, a friend of mine. Um, He's a, he's a pastor at an Assemblies of God church up in, up in upstate New York. And each week we talk about different issues that matter to people of faith. Sometimes, sometimes we get right into the Bible. Like last week, we, last week we did the Jewish versus Christian understandings of original sin in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in the creation story. But sometimes we get into politics. Next week we're going to be talking about elections, about the elections in Israel. We have different guests on who are doing different things, sometimes Jewish guests, sometimes Christian guests. 
talking about all kinds of issues that are going on in the world that relate to people of faith. It's a weekly podcast, and I would greatly appreciate it. I would be grateful to you. Uh, it doesn't cost you anything. If you were to go give it a listen, go download it, subscribe, and it's a great way for you to stay in touch with me and uh, to continue to be part of this, this growing relationship between Jews and Christians. So it's shoulder-to-shoulder podcast. Um, look, folks, there's, things are, are, are really happening now. Things are really big now. And we need, you know, I think everyone should commit for the next couple of weeks, next week and a half, we have the Israeli election. Like I said, we have the election in Brazil today. Brazil's a country of over 200 million people. This is, a, this is important. We have the Brazilian election, the Israeli election, the US, elect, the US midterms. I think everyone should commit to, and, you know, just carve out for yourself every day an extra few minutes of prayer. You could, you, you could pray psalms, you could just pray spontaneously, but carve it out for yourself, an extra commitment to pray even more as we move through this time. And we will hopefully, hopefully we will, we will see good signs. We will see good things. Listen, let's remember, as people of faith, we know that the end of the story is good. And God was on the throne before these elections and he's gonna be on the throne after these elections. But at the same time, you know, when the people of Israel were running away from the Egyptians, when they had left Egypt, and they reached the banks of the Red Sea, the Egyptian army started chasing them. The Egyptian army started chasing them. And they saw the Egyptian army coming, and they started panicking, and they screaming out. And Moses said to the people, oh, don't worry. You just stay still. God's going to save you. And you know what God said to Moses? It's one of the most remarkable verses in the Bible. God says to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the people to go. Why are you crying out to me? I mean, like, you're God. I'm praying. What do you mean, why am I crying out to you? We're supposed to pray in times of trouble. Why is God telling Moses he shouldn't be crying out to him? You know why? Because sometimes we use prayer as a way of not doing anything else. Sometimes we say, well, I'm praying to God. Like, so when Moses says to the people, you don't do anything. You just sit still. God will take care of everything. God's like, no, 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 no. That's not how prayer is supposed to work. Our faith is supposed to embolden us. It's supposed to make us stronger. If you're using prayer as an excuse to do nothing else, then God's message is his message to Moses. No, 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 no. Don't cry out to me. Get going. So of course we must pray, but we must also take action. We must also be active. And God will bless what's going to happen over this next week and a half. And let's stay strong in our faith. God bless. Thank you for listening to today's message. We'd love for you to join us for our Sunday morning service at 930, as well as our midweek service on Wednesday nights at 7. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.